right, well, good morning, Anthem Church. You guys have your Bibles. We can open them up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. My name is Stan Hayek, one of the pastors here. So good to be with you guys, uh, those checking in online. You guys picked the right service. We got a couple baptisms today. Uh, really excited about that to get to hear these young guys, their testimony. Um, but today, the, the topic from Matthew chapter 5 as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount is one of commitments. And specifically, the first section is about the commitment that is made between a husband and a wife and, so, um, and what happens when that's broken. And so here's the reality, though. Uh, for those that are unmarried or those that are happily married, or, uh, the, the reality is this. Statistically speaking, 40 to 50% of marriages end in divorce. And my guess is that you guys know somebody that's been through a divorce, perhaps a family member, a friend, or, or somebody that might be in the process of that. And so how would you begin to counsel them through that? What would you say? I believe God's word today is going to better equip us for that. And perhaps you're like, well, I don't, everybody I know is happily married. Hey, that is awesome. But you do know what it's like when people break commitments to you, when they say they're going to do one thing, but in reality, they do another. So we've perhaps experienced the broken commitments in that regard. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever experienced God breaking a promise to you? Has God ever broken a promise to you? And if you're like, yeah, then it's like, no, you, you must not understand. Because God is a promise keeper. He keeps his promises. And perhaps if you think that, that God's broken a promise, you don't understand what God has actually promised. In Isaiah 40 verse 8, it'll be on the screen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Joshua would remind the nation of Israel before his death, he said, not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. See, God is a promise maker and a promise keeper, but we are not like God in that. We have all broken commitments, said we're going to do some things. Remember those New, Year, New Year's resolutions, right? Like we, we, we don't always follow through on our commitments. And so we're not like God. And I think as we study today's text, the gap between us and God is only going to increase when we understand that we are not like him in that way. I think Matsman is saying it, and he's the first one. I don't know if he's quoting some old Puritan, but he's like, but until you understand that gap, until your sin becomes bitter, Christ cannot become sweet. And so it's all right to sit in that and understand. And we're going to study today and see the one that, that, that bridges that gap between us and God. And so we're in Matthew chapter 5, 31 through 37. And again, this is the Sermon on the Mount. And at the time, the scribes and Pharisees of that day are creating a bit of a solar eclipse. Now, I, if you were here a few years ago, you know what I'm talking about with solar eclipse, right? Yeah, we were like right in the flash. Oh, my flashlight's on. Okay, so this is going to represent the sun, everybody, right? feel like the, the science guy here. Okay, so with the solar eclipse in 2017, we were right in the path, and what happened is the, the, the moon moves in front of the sun, totally blocked it out, totally awesome. Right? You didn't even need glasses to look at the sun. You could just look up, and you, well, you probably were supposed to have them for a period of time. That's why I saw spots for a while. But, but at, there's two minutes there uh, where the, the, the sun is com completely blocked out by the moon. 
And it was awesome. And you remember like the, the crickets start chirping and it's dark all around and you could see like things up in the sky like the planets and stars maybe even. I don't know. It was so wild. Okay. What has happened with the scribes and the Pharisees is, sorry, Cal, can you see this over here? Cal, what happened was that the scribes and the Pharisees created kind of a little bit of like a spiritual eclipse were these guys that were supposed to be reflecting God's light and showing everybody God is the source. Instead of doing that, they'd come and stood in front. And at that time, everybody's like, well, these guys, they're the holy ones. They're awesome. Everybody's looking to them. And so last week, we could see that these guys, Jesus is starting to kind of get on a little bit because he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. you got to get past these guys. Because these guys, what they said last week, they said, oh, it's okay to look, just don't touch. <laughs> to which God's like, uh, no, that is not my heart when it comes to adultery. Even looking or thinking lustful thoughts is like committing adultery in your heart. And so he's saying, you got to get past these guys. And so we pick it up today in verse 31, the same thing. He's like, hey, they've also said this. The scribes and Pharisees, They've been saying when it comes to divorce, whoever divorces his wife, just let him give her a certificate of divorce. Okay, well, that's not far off from what was originally found in Deuteronomy 24, uh, 24 verse 1. It'll be on the screen. Originally, this is in the law, Old Testament, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. So this was the right scripture that the scribes and Pharisees were referencing, but a very wrong interpretation. Because according to the scribes and Pharisees at this time, what they're saying is you are commanded and you must divorce your wife if you find some indecency in her, which could mean any reason. So if you find another woman who's prettier than your wife, that'd be reason for divorce. Uh, if you find somebody else who's a better cook, well, that's not okay. So you can divorce your wife and go pursue that relationship. That was what was being said. And so, hey, there's no fault in it. Just end that relationship and go pursue what makes you happy. You're like, well, that sounds a little crazy. Yeah, we adopted the same thing in the summer of 1969. We adopted the same logic when the then governor of California, Ronald Reagan, signed the first no-fault statute of divorce into law. Within 11 years, the national divorce rate had doubled to 50%. And since then, all 50 states have adopted similar no-fault divorce laws. Reagan would later say, that of all the things he signed, that's the signature he regretted most of all. And today, the divorce rate is still roughly 40 to 50%. And I know some of you are like, I heard it's dropping. Yeah, because people are stopping getting married and they're just cohabitating. Are relationships really any better off? If that's the case, no. They're still being broken. And the number one reason for divorce in our day and age is not infidelity. It's this. Nearly half of all marriages that end in divorce, the number one reason, are just not compatible anymore. Just, they don't make me happy like they did originally. And so therefore, 
Just not feeling it, so we're going to end it. That's the reason for half of why marriages end. The other one is, is money issues. We keep arguing about a mo- money. And infidelity is in there as well. But, but again, those are some of the reasons for divorce, but what's at the root? And in our context, the root, you can't unmarry this text, verse 31 and on, from what was said just prior to this in verse 27. It's all in the context of adultery. And so Jesus is saying divorce and adultery are linked together. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, they have this adulterous heart. They want another woman that's not their wife. And so they found a loophole to act on that adultery by simply, hey, I can have somebody that's not my wife so long as I file the proper paperwork with the one I do have. And if I give her the certificate of divorce and put it in her hand, then I'm free to pursue this other woman who might be younger or prettier or a cook or whatever it is. No fault of my own. And, how, and, and this was happening so prolifically. How do we know that this is what the Pharisees thought? Because Jesus is going to teach him this again later on in the same book, Matthew, and it'll be on the screen. Matthew 19. And the Pharisees came to him in 19 verse 3. And tested him, Jesus, by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now you have to understand, they wanted Jesus dead by this point. There was somebody else who spoke out against divorce. That was John the Baptist, and he lost his head over the deal. And so if they can't kill Jesus one way, they're going to get him like this. And so they're asking, hey, is it Is it lawful to divorce your wife for any cause? To which Jesus preaches to them. He's like, listen, it's supposed to be one man, one woman together. They leave and cleave their home and they get married. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. He said in verse 16, but they're not content with that. And so in verse seven, they said to him, well, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? You have to, language is important. They saw divorce as a command. It's something we must do. If if she's not right in our eyes and and she's no longer found favor, we're commanded to break it off. And so Jesus said this in verse 8. He said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. That's consistent with our text today, verse 32. But I say to you, everyone who divorces wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now you have to understand, this is so countercultural to what they believe, what was known, what was practiced. I mean, it was just a real like wife swap happening, indiscriminately divorcing each other. And what Jesus is saying is, you made a vow for better or for worse to stick with that person, and no thing and no one should separate you. Now the disciples, the disciples were present for this. They heard it once today in Matthew 5, and in Uh, chapter 19, they're hearing this again. And how do we know how warped their thinking is? Because the disciples, upon the second time of hearing what Jesus said about a man and woman sticking together, the disciples, verse 10, the, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man and his wife, it's better to not marry. 
It's like, this, this is crazy. You want us to stick it out? I, it's probably better to just not even get married. The disciples were saying that. This is how warped their culture and their thinking was. And Jesus said, so be it. I'm not going to change it. I'm sorry that it's hard for you. You want to know how hard it would be? Think about the women who were suffering under the misinterpretation of this law. I mean, there was a time. So the whole nation of Israel found its name from the man Israel, Jacob. And if you go back and read the story, Jacob, when he wanted to marry Rachel, he did not have money for the dowry. That is the bride price that was to be paid from the man to the bride's family. He didn't have that money, which, y'all, think of where we come from culturally, right? It used to be the groom gave a sum of money to the family. Now, somehow, we've got the bride and her family paying for the wedding. I protest as if someone that has four daughters. I'm not, I'm not, I don't like where we've come on that. Okay? We've moved a long ways, but here's, here's the reason. It was to ensure that if something happened to him, she could go home and she would be provided for. Even in the event of death, he was responsible to care for his wife. And so Jacob, having no money, puts in seven years worth of wages and labor to marry Rachel. Now you think, in their context, the scribes and the Pharisees, how far have they regressed from that? As sons of Jacob, now, for the daughters of Rachel, they're not separated by, de uh, by death, but by divorce. And the daughters of Rachel are not returning home to a dowry to be provided for. They're returning home with a piece of paper, a certificate of divorce. And this is just the culture. It's just what happened. And it's not God's heart for marriage. And it was rooted in lust, this adulterous heart. I said, I want another woman, so I've got to get rid of this one first. And I'm just saying that, that the root of it, you can't unmarry these things. The root of their breaking divorce, uh, breaking their marriage in divorce was adultery. And you're going to get somebody that, as you counsel through this, or perhaps it's like, well, not me. There's not another person. I just, I'm just not happy. Well, then your problem's not adultery, it's idolatry. It's the idol of happiness. Somehow, the pursuit of happiness supersedes your vow to another person. It supersedes God's word, which explicitly says, no, you're not to be divorced. You're staying committed to that vow. And just divorce, just even if somebody says, well, I just want to be happy. Divorce does not equal happiness. It does not equal happiness. You're going against God's word. So by design, it's likely going to be a painful process. And here's the reality. Even if somebody's like, well, I don't want to listen to God's word. I don't care what God has to say about this and his design. I just want to be happy. Okay. Take a secular source. There was a study that was done in 2002. It's like, if you just want to be happy, in 2002, they found that two-thirds of the adults, the married adults, that were unhappy in marriage, if they stuck it out, within five years, they would identify as happy. And those that were unhappy in marriage, that got divorced, 
There's no statistical evidence that they ended up any happier as a result of that. In other words, most people who are unhappily married end up happy if they just stick it out. And that's a secular article proclaiming that. It is this reality that the grass is not greener on the other side. The grass is greener where you water it. And so it's why statistically proven that that if people get one divorce, they're likely to get another. Never addressing the core root, the core problem. And so the religious leaders have found creative ways to be uh, adulterous with these certificates of divorce. I want the other woman. I've got, I've, I'm married to this one now, but if I file the necessary paperwork, I can go have her. See? And they're coming to Jesus. See, we don't commit adultery. And Jesus is like, yeah, you do. You do in your mind and in your heart, and you're, you're, you're propagating adultery all over the place because the reality is that's still your wife. I'm glad you gave her a piece of paper, but that's still your wife in the eyes of God. It's a, it's a piece of paper. It doesn't make you unmarried somehow. You still are one flesh. It's right now like this ring. I'm married. Not married? No. I'm clearly married, right? But this is just a, a symbol. And so this, this paperwork, it doesn't mean somebody married or not married. In the eyes of God, they are still one flesh. Here's a, a pastoral moment. Marriage aside, Christian, just because you've found a reason for your behavior does not make it right in the eyes of God. Just because you can justify your actions does not mean that they're just in the eyes of God. For a long time now, given humanity, we've found creative ways to justify our actions. And the Pharisees, they failed to look at their their hearts here. And had they looked at their hearts, they would have seen lustful, adulterous individuals. And I would just say, are you willing to push pause on your self-defense for just a second and say, man, what is, what is prompting me to respond in this way? What's at the core of what's going on here? They did not do that. And at the core of their heart was adultery. And Jesus said it in verse 32, in doing so, you're committing adultery because in the eyes of God, you still are married. And it, so therefore, if she goes, that's your wife in the eyes of God, and if she goes and marries another man and gets united with him, that's not her husband, and so that's adultery. And if you, you're married in the eyes of God, but you're like, well, I just don't like you anymore, doesn't matter. You're still married in the eyes of God. It's a covenantal commitment. It's not based on feelings. It's you are a couple. And when you say, well, she's not feeling it, and then you go and you marry somebody else, and you give yourself to them physically, that's not your wife. This was your wife. Even if you're frustrated, it doesn't matter. She's still your wife. And so that's why at the root, it's adultery. And so we're going to see over and over again the references throughout Scripture. God never sanctions divorce. He never commands it, never approves of it, never gives his stamp of of approval on that. It's acknowledged only as a concession for sinful people. And when is the concession given? It's when your spouse breaks the marriage vows and goes and unites themselves with somebody else physically. And so he said in the text, aside from sexual immorality. But here's the, the reality is, what was the other option? 
Divorce, I would say like this. Divorce was a concession, but it was never the, the intention. And so think of this story. You remember when, when Mary was found to be with child, and Joseph learns like this, and he's like, he was betrothed to be wed to Mary. He's like, uh, it's not my kid. And so Joseph has this moment where he's like, I'm going to go to her, and I'm going to divorce her quietly. That was until the angel appeared and explained it all to him. But, but originally, he's like, I'm going to go divorce her quietly. Because what was the other biblical alternative at the time? Leviticus 20, verse 10, it'll be on the screen. The other alternative, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. See, divorce was tolerated only as an alternative to execution. Divorce, or they deserve death for their actions. And for the record, we see another option, which would be forgiveness. whole book of Scripture dedicated to the story of Hosea, who forgives his wife Gomer for her infidelity. Forgiveness would have been a better option to seek to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. Now, if you're hearing this and you're unmarried, you're like, man, to be committed at that level for better, for worse, that seems pretty like a big deal. To which, yeah, it is the most important decision you'll ever make is who you worship and who you'll marry. Who you worship and who you marry. Both decisions are sealed with a public covenant and vows that symbolize those things. Who you worship, baptism is the sign for that. Who you marry, there's a sign for that in its rings. And if you're thinking, man, marriage, that seems like a big commitment to be committed to one person for better, for worse, for the rest of your life, rest assured you're thinking about it correctly, which is what the disciples were understanding. They're like, that seems like a big deal. Yep. Now you understand God's heart for that. And for those that are married, I would just say this. You're like, ah, hey, whew, still married. Got it. Okay. Staying married should not be your end goal. That's a pretty low bar. It's like, we just didn't break up. No, the goal would be to have a happy and, and healthy marriage. Because when marriage is done well, it puts Christ on display, Ephesians 5 talks about. When you continue like the grass is greener, where you water it, the question is like, do you have a healthy marriage, a happy marriage, one that really represents Jesus well? Because to simply just stay married would be a pretty low bar. And I would argue that it, it takes as much or more work to have a poor marriage as it does to put the time in to have a, a healthy marriage. Now, that being said, my wife was at the first service. My wife, Sarah, she is amazing. Love my wife. We've been married for just over 10 years and four daughters. Um, we have, I would, without a doubt, the, the, our marriage is the healthiest it's ever been, happiest it's ever been. I'll spare you all the details of why I would say that, but great marriage, great wife, love her a ton. Um, but it's something that has grown in time because I'm going to be honest, okay? Be very honest here, transparent. Our first few years of marriage were rough, okay? We had a little panel for our college students one time, and I'm like, hopefully I'm not sharing too much. Some of you were at that thing. But I'm telling you, legitimately, in those first years of marriage, 
I would probably cry on the average of three to four times a week. I mean, it was hard. And we never said, like, the D word. That was never an option. But it was to the point where I'm like, Lord, I will not leave my wife, but if you want to kill me, I'm okay with that. You laugh. That was a sincere prayer. During those times where a couple sinners are just pounding it out, you're like, Lord, take me home. Like, and it was genuine. Like That was where God brought us through as he's chiseling us, sanctifying us. Nobody's helped me become more like Jesus than my wife, and it's been a painful process as iron sharpens iron. So my wife has been used to sharpen me, and, and I'm just saying that, that it's because of that. What God has brought us through, persevering from that, we now have the marriage that we have today. And I'm excited for what the next 10 years is going to look like. But it was hard fought. I see people, and I just want to clarify that because people are like, wow, that's hard. That, if it's hard, it must not be of God. Really? We follow a Savior that was crucified on a cross. And so if we're going to believe the heretics would say, well, following God, it just must be easy, must come natural. You forget the gospel? True gospel is it? No, the, the, the following Jesus and doing the right thing. It's going to be hard. And there's going to be challenges. But in the end, God is going to work all things out for the good of those who love him, who seek him. And so just want to, to commission people to continue to work on your marriage. And my wife and I, and I know for some of you, that might mean a date. For my wife and I, we're implementing something in this next season where we're going to get away quarterly, just kind of a night away, where we continue to, to, to work on our marriage, investing. That's the most important human relationship I have. Are you continuing to invest in your marriage, or is it kind of in coast mode right now? And I would just say, yeah, it takes a level of creati creativity with COVID right now to find a way to pursue your, your spouse but it's so worth it. And so for married couples, I would say in light of how highly God values marriage, don't just stay married, have a great marriage. And there's a crowd that's, that perhaps you've experienced divorce. Or you know somebody and they're going to ask this question. Is there, is there grace for me? Like I haven't done what God's wanted for me. I've broken covenants. I've, I've been given to adultery. What about that? Like, I didn't do what God wanted. Can I be forgiven? I would just want to clearly say, yeah, absolutely, there's forgiveness, but so much more. See, if God were like us in terms of covenants and forgiveness, we'd be in trouble. And if we were expected to be like God, that would be trouble as well. But the reality is, God, in his mercy, would, would look at those who have fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And no, to what degree we've fallen short, it's rather irrelevant. But God would look upon all of us that have fallen short. And he'd say, yeah, you must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's coming a few verses later in 48. He requires perfection, but he's provided that through Jesus Christ. That if we put our trust in Jesus Christ, all of those 
who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We can not only be forgiven, and so you say, well, I've been divorced. Can I be forgiven? Yeah, but more so, you can be counted as righteousness because not only did Jesus cancel our debts, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' righteousness, not only are our debts canceled, so it's not like our balance is just simply zero, but the righteousness of Jesus, his balance is credited to us. That is what God would have for those that have been through divorce, those that have broken his commands, of which we all have. And so if you feel like, oh, it's just unforgivable, just know that is not what God's heart towards you would be. We have been more than forgiven. We've been shown the grace of God because he keeps his promises. And he keeps his promise to us. And so therefore, in light of that, we ought to keep our promises, most especially to our spouse, but also we're going to see just in covenants in general. And he's going to go on in verse 33 to just talk about keeping your covenants. He says, again, you've heard it said, scribes and Pharisees again, you've heard it said to the people long ago, don't break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. If you're taking notes, an oath is just this. It's a solemn promise, often invoking a divine witness regarding one's future action or behavior. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, they're saying, hey, don't break your oath. You've got to fulfill your vow, which seems like a, a good teaching. But Jesus is like, or stop promising things about the future that you can't deliver on. Stop making vows and oaths. <laughs> He says, I tell you in verse 34, do not swear on an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is a footstool, or by Jerusalem, for the city of the great king. And do not swear by your own head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Does anybody in here need a reminder that the future is uncertain? <laughs> Does anyone need a reminder that we are not in control? That is more prevalent now than it has ever been. And it's a reminder. It's like, who are we? How presumptuous to be like, hey, you know what? I promise down the road that, that this, this, and this. Saying, so you can't, no. You can't even change your hair colors. Or I'd say, grow it back. As I wish I could. He's like, if you can't do that, how can you promise something about the future? James would pick this theme up and he'd say, listen, you're going to say, today or tomorrow, we're going to do this and do that. We're going to go here and make money. He's saying, no, you're but a mist. Here today, gone tomorrow. In James 4.15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Don't make promises about the future since you don't know what the future holds. And so Jesus is saying, it's not about if you make a vow, yes, keep it, but stop making vows about the future and say, if the Lord wills. And so some of y'all are putting us in a pretty tough spot with these wedding RSVPs. I'm just going to throw that out there. You're like, oh, I'm going to get married. So what are you going to do six months from now on a Saturday at 3.30? Come on. Like, I feel like, and then you have two options. Will you come? Yes or regretfully decline. I like it. It's not no. It's regretfully decline. What if I delightfully recline, uh, decline? No, I like, uh, but, but here's the thing. It's like, if you're sending me one of those, like, please leave some space so I can do a write-in where the answer ought to be, 
yes, Lord willing, and if a really understandable circumstance comes up, I'll let you know and we'll have a clarifying conversation before I don't show up to your wedding. Like, that would be my write-in because the reality is, is it's hard to promise. Now, again, we need to respond. I know you need to figure out, like the caterers, I, I'm, I'm with you on that, right? Uh, nobody wants to be eating like their wedding leftovers for the first year of marriage. Uh, so make sure you get a good caterer, cat, okay, uh, if that happens. But, but here's the reality is, like, it's hard. It's hard to make promises about the future. And so Jesus is saying, maybe stop making them. And if you do have to say something, let your words be few. Verse 37, he says, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And again, I think at the heart of this is the reason people are using more words that are swearing by things. It's to to ensure to others, like, I really am telling the truth, I promise. It's little kids where it's like, "Are are you telling the truth? It's like, yep. Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Some of you have that phrase growing up where it's like, I promise, I swear on my mother's grave, I swear it. And then we grow up and we just use different cute phrases to say, well, truth be told, well, to be honest, or some people are like, I swear, I swear. Now, here's the thing. I want you to catch yourself if you're one of those who has to frequently invoke, like, I promise, I'm telling the truth, I swear it. Because what are you saying? What you're saying is, other times when I talk, I might be lying to you, but I'm not lying right now. I mean, that's what you're, that's what you're saying. It's like, I can't be taken at my word at other times, and so you have to trust me right now that you can take me at my word. You shouldn't have to do that. We should be men and women of our word. When we say yes, We mean yes. And when we say no, it's no. We shouldn't have to add to it. And if you are needing to add to your words in order for people to take you serious, I would just want you to inspect and say, man, there's there's perhaps something broken there where you're not trustworthy or deemed trustworthy unless you swear it. And so we just want to call that in our language. It should not be so. We ought to be people of our word. And if we say we're going to do something, we do it, even when it hurts, even when it means buying 20 chickens you don't need. Let me explain. So sometimes after work, I go home by way of tractor supply store. Don't know why. The smell of feed and just my people. I just feels great to go shop there, okay? Gals, Target, that's your thing. Tractor supply, that's my jam. And so go in there. I'm like, I need something, you know, for, I don't know. And so I'm walking around and all of a sudden they've got like these tanks like that. uh, And there are uh, some chicks in there. And these chicks are hardly chicks. They're like chickens at this point. They are growing. And I've frequent there. And so I realized like once they get to a certain size, they're not as desirable when they're not the orange or yellow fluffy chicks. Uh, Once they start getting the white feathers, they're like, ah, we're done with them. So striking up a conversation, I'm like, well, looks like they're getting big. What do you want to have for them? And so they start to discount them. Hey, shot me a price where I'm like, man, I don't want to lose money on the deal. So I was like, tell you what, I'll be back tomorrow, pick up some chicks. I get in the truck and I'm like, why did I do that? Like, I don't need any more chickens. I'm not a chicken farmer. Like, I have plenty of food in the freezer and like processing. What did I do? But I'm struck as I'm studying this text. I'm like, but I told him 
I would be back tomorrow morning. So now I own 20 chickens because I want to be a person of my word. I don't want to just be flippant. And I didn't want to go into tractor supply in a few weeks, which is going to happen, and to see my boy there. And he'd be like, hey, you didn't come for your chickens. And be like, I know, I'm a liar. No. <laughs> Show up and I buy the chickens and I take them home and put them in a shed and grow them. And so the thing is, like, you, we have to be people of our word. And so Jesus is saying, let me save yourself. <laughs> Don't go on record for those things that you can't promise. And if you do, let it mean something. And if you say you're going to do something, do it. And if not, and so... For those college people, be very slow when you're accepting job offers. You don't want to be telling somebody, hey, I'm good for it, and then backing out. Got to be people of our word. Because God is a God of his word. God keeps his promises, and so we're to reflect that. And so just full circle, kind of bringing it into kind of the response for today. God is a promise keeper. He keeps his promise to us. And so therefore, when we vow in front of God, family, and friends, we ought to keep that promise to our spouse. And when we say yes or no, we need to mean that. Which is why when you're like, wow, that's serious. Yeah. Why is it be quick to, to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry? He who holds his tongue is wise. Because if we're going to go on record... We've got to follow through. And here's the deal. God has gone on record with us. He said, I've sent my son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place. <laughs> I don't break promises like you break promises. I keep them. And I've made a way through Jesus Christ. And so there is forgiveness in Jesus. And with that, a level of freedom that we can have. And so I'm going to give you some, some uh, direction for when it comes to uh, communion, but I can't wait for you guys to get to hear from Daniel and Brandon. And so a couple guys I'm going to bring up here, and the band's going to come on up, but I can't wait for you guys to hear their testimonies. And so, Joe, you want to run that mic up? Daniel, Brandon, come on up. So these are a couple guys that put their trust in Jesus and are, are getting baptized today. And so I think, Daniel, you were going first. So you guys both come on up here and stand. Yeah, there you go. Hi, um, I'm Daniel. A uh, little backstory about myself. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home. I've always gone to church. A um, few years back, I actually said a prayer, thought I was in the clear, I actually got baptized. Um, but then I proceeded to spend the next last few years of my life just questioning many aspects of Christianity, um, doubting my faith, and I just haven't been in a good spot. There's been no clarity. Fast forward to this year, I started going to Anthem and Saul at the beginning of this year, a couple months before quarantine hit. Um, God really started working on me a couple months ago, so as a means of doing that, I was trying to address various behaviors in my life to try and get some sort of relief. And then it was actually at one of Pastor Stan's services where he talked about just because you're addressing behaviors doesn't make you any more like alive to Christ. And it was at that point that I started praying and I realized the reason for all my convictions was because I was not a Christian and that Christ was not in my heart. 
that day I made the decision to give my life to Christ, and the reason I want to be baptized today is because that's symbolic of myself dying to my old life and starting a new life in Christ. Hi guys, uh, I'm Brandon. Um, I've been pretty consistently going to Salt now for about five or six months. Um, and growing up, my family never really forced faith onto me, um, but they wanted me to kind of find that on my own. I spent a lot of my life not really sure where my, where my beliefs were, how strong my faith was. Uh, I'd always known about God, and I'd always heard stories about Jesus and the gospel, um, but I never really felt sure about a lot of it. Uh, some, of may, some of you may know my roommates, uh, Ben Craven, Ben Dahlgren, and Scott Link, um, and then my friend Daniel, who is also getting baptized. Um, watching them kind of grow um, as men of God and in their faith has been more than a blessing to me. I've known Ben since freshman year, and I've gotten to see him grow as a man of God. Um, and I always thought, you know, man, that's cool, that's awesome, like good for him. Um, last December, Scott made the decision to also get baptized, and I thought, man, that's cool, that's awesome, good for him. But there was always a small part of me that wondered why I wasn't there yet and why I didn't feel what they felt. Um, and as college progressed for me, I started to struggle a lot with stress and anxiety, not only with my faith, but um, with my school, grades, friends, family, etc. Um, I really started reflecting on my relationship with God and where I wanted it to be or where I thought it should be. I talked to Chris and my roommates about the way I was feeling, um, and they asked me if I had ever thought about baptism, which I had, uh, just not very seriously. My response to everyone was just that I didn't feel ready, and Chris was super good about asking me um, what was holding me back um, and why I didn't feel ready. The more I thought about it, uh, the more I started to realize that I guess I was the one that was holding myself back. Um, and just in the past few weeks, I felt God really working in my life more than ever, and my heart's been super heavy with that question, um, why don't I get baptized? So I asked Chris to talk to me, and I pretty much told him that I thought I was ready. After talking to everyone, I just started to realize that I'm never really going to be more ready than I am right now. Um, I've always wanted to fix my life and fix the things that I thought were wrong um, before I got baptized, but I started to realize more that God never has never called us to be perfect. Uh, I'm definitely not perfect, um, and I'm here today because I want to walk more with God, and I want to take these steps to mend the relationship, um, and I'm here today because nothing's really holding me back. And so as these guys get ready, what you hear them saying is their trust is not in their actions, but it is in the finished work of Jesus. Jesus died. He gave his body. It was broken. His blood was shed for you and for me. And the symbol that he's given us is, is that of baptism where it represents him being buried in the tomb and then resurrected uh, out of the tomb. And so our hope is in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, that we can have life after life. And so they're going to get the opportunity to profess Jesus in this way, declaring him as the hope. Because that, that's tap water, y'all. That's not washing away anything, right? That Jesus Christ is the only way we can be forgiven. That is the price that God has asked, perfection, and he paid for it. For us, And so they're going to declare Jesus in that way. After they get baptized, I would just invite you guys to respond. If you, your trust is in Jesus, the sign that we have to celebrate regularly is that of communion, where your trust is in his 
broken body, which is the bread and his blood. And so there's communion cups under your, your seat. And so after they've uh, been baptized, it would invite you to take communion where you're at. And then when you're ready to stand and worship with us.